suddenly we find that especially with COVID and, and the Ukrainian war, that suddenly the, the, the world is breaking up and everybody's looking, you know, what side they should be on. They could pretend that, you know, it's us and the United States, we run the world. And now all of a sudden you wake up one morning and you realize that you're just a, you know, a large regional power. And I think for, for those people, a lot of those people, that came as a bit of a shock and they basically began to uh, sort of blame the West for the predicament they were in. You know, you can't blame the war on this single individual. There's a whole system at play there. There's a lot of uh, interests that are at work. And if Putin is taken out, then somebody else will replace him who might uh, smile a little bit more than Putin does. But essentially, things will pretty much remain the same. One of my fears, you know, is not just simply what Russia is doing in Ukraine. One of my fears is what will happen if Russia implodes, the Federation implodes, because, you know, the Russian Federation is by no means as coherent and stable as it looks. A lot of the republics, you know, sort of that exist within the Russian Federation are dying to get out of that Federation. They're all looking somewhere else. Hey Francis, do you like journalism? Of course! So who's your favourite journalist then? Superman. What? Superman! Superman isn't a real person, Francis. He's an alien, he's not a journalist, and more importantly, he's fucking fictional, mate. If he was fictional, then why did Frederick Nietzsche write about Superman, otherwise known as Ubermensch, in his seminal work, Thus Spoke Zarathustra, published in 1883, but still widely quoted today by both students and intellectuals alike. Sometimes, Francis, I feel as if I have no clue who you really are. But if you do like journalism, then you have to check out the Epoch Times. The Epoch Times, unlike most media organisations, is produced without the influence of any government, corporation or political party. They distill a story down to the facts and get readers as close to the truth as they can. The articles are free from the influence of big tech, corporate media and socialist and communist forces as well. The Epoch Times believe the more facts you have at your disposal, the better able you are to preserve your rights. Here's what the readers say about them. The articles present a factual picture of the news from a conservative and American perspective. I feel the Epoch Times is the only publication out there that gives me factual information about stories in the news that other outlets and publications blatantly report with liberal political biases. Go to epochtim.es forward slash trigonometry and click the link. That's epochtim, E-P-O-C-H-T-I-M dot E-S slash trigonometry. Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kissinger. And this is a show for you if you want honest conversations with fascinating people. Our brilliant guest today is an emeritus professor at the University of Kent uh, and a prolific author, not least of his latest book, which is this, The Road to Ukraine, How the West Lost Its Way. Frank Ferretti, welcome to Trigonometry. Real pleasure to talk to you guys. Uh, We've been meaning to have you on for a while, and uh, this is a good opportunity to do that. Before we get into talking about your latest book, tell everybody, who are you? How are you where you are? What has been uh, your journey through life leads you to be sitting here talking to us? Well, it all began in 1956 in the Hungarian Revolution. 
when my parents and I were very active fighting the Russians and uh, decided to leave when the revolution was crushed. Ended up in Canada. I grew up in Canada where I studied politics and decided to come to London to do my PhD. The plan was to go back to Canada, but I, I just kind of never went back. I realized I was a European and got involved in radical left politics at that stage in time, a student radical. I'm one of those 60s persons that has no regrets. I really enjoyed you know, those years. They were real good fun. And then gradually, with the passing of time, the world changed. I find myself being drawn more and more in a slightly different direction than even a greater direction towards uh, becoming uh, much more uh, interested in old classical liberal ideas. And at the end of the day, I became very active politically and commented on political cultural issues whilst being a professor at the university. And today I've got the honor of uh, being called in any day of the week uh, a Marxist by some people and a fascist by other people. But I just think I'm a regular guy, you know, sort of with strong views. Well, welcome to the club. I think we all get called that. <laughs> when was the last time you were called a Marxist, mate? Yeah. Uh, exactly. Yeah, that is true. That doesn't actually. happen to, me, to, to us too much. A uh, left-wing shill. Uh, uh, yes, neoliberal shill. That's yeah. just what your girlfriend calls you. Yeah. Anyway, uh, Frank, you've <laughs> got a book out, <laughs> as smooth as that uh, transition is, which is called The Road to Ukraine. Uh, and uh, one of the things you talk about is our inability to understand the role of the past in forming the present. And you talk about how this conflict has its roots in World War One, which, let's be honest, wasn't covered heavily in the mainstream media news coverage of, of this conflict. So take it away. Well, the way that I look at it is that in the First World War, everything became disrupted in Europe, particularly well, all over the world. So you had the Russian Revolution that uh, kind of kicked in as a result of that. The breakup of the different empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Ottoman Empire, the German Empire, they're all kind of disintegrated. And this led to us a chain of events where all kinds of national ethnic conflicts became very, very important. They were on, all unresolved, which meant that uh, nobody was surprised when the Second World War broke out. And people thought, well, that might bring things to an end. History is probably going to become easier from here onwards, but then the Cold War kicked in. And what happened was that when the Cold War finished, and in particular when the Soviet Union disintegrated, a lot of people, people imagined that that's history, that's the past, and we now live in a new world. And they imagined that, you know, they had this uh, fantasy that somehow Europe was going to become peaceful. Books were written with the, with the title of how wars had become obsolete how uh, we're not going to have a uh, harmonious uh, existence. The Germans in particular imagined that they could somehow seduce the Russians by, uh, through economic trade, that somehow economic trade would lead to democracy and, and it would lead to the liberalization of cultural life, both in China and in Russia. And then all of a sudden we realized that wars, you know, which were not supposed to happen, are very real and are very contemporary. And what I'm arguing in the book is that by forgetting what history was about, I call it historical amnesia, we somehow lost our way and uh, failed to realize that there is a, a, a legacy there, there's a burden of history there that we've got to engage with a little bit more uh, sort of creatively than we're doing at the moment. Otherwise, 
we're going to be caught unaware as we did when, when Russia invaded the Ukraine. Isn't part of the problem, Frank, I know Constantine always talks about this, is that we believe in the West that everybody thinks like us. And the reality is that they don't. They, have, they see the world in a different way. They have different goals. And as a result, they're going to do different things. I think that's true. And that need not be a problem. I don't think er there's any need for everybody to kind of talk to the same script. Uh, so I've got no problem with that. I mean, when you go to Russia or when you go to East Europe, there's something nice in their particular interpretation of the world, the way they see things. But I think where there was a problem was, uh, was imagining that somehow through the uh, imperative of, of the market and through economic relations, that somehow uh, consumerism and capitalism would seduce everybody to become just like we are and that somehow that would transcend their historical and cultural legacy and not really understand that when you sit down with a Russian or a Polish person or a Latvian person, you're talking to somebody who sees the world from a very different perspective than somebody living in Manchester. And um, Frank, so how is that manifested? We talked, let, let's come back to World War One because you've got these huge empires that collapse. They leave a lot of uh, simmering national conflicts. How is that related to the war in Ukraine? I mean, I think I have an interpretation, but tell our audience. Well, I think that the Ukraine became this uh, battlefield for competing national interests. And during the 20th century, it, it was dominated and invaded by a variety of different uh, nations, from the Germans to the Russians to the Czechs. The Hungarians went in there as well. And the, the Ukraine wasn't really a nation, you know, in, in the sovereign sense of the term until much, much later, even though it had a very strong national movement in, in the Ukraine that hoped that after the First World War, Ukraine would be given uh, self-determination. Uh, the Russians, the Soviet government promised them this new Ukrainian federation, which would be almost like a nation, but it really wasn't. But what's interesting is that when you go to Ukraine, it is, it, it is like a very layered society with different historical interests in it. And I remember because I started off the book with my trip to the Ukraine, the Ukraine, and I was really walking around in a place in, in a place in Transcarpathia, which I heard so much about from my parents. And there are these different layers. You see, you know, like you go to the church, and on the church door it says there are, there's a mass for in in Slovakian on Monday, uh, on Tuesday we have a, we have a mass for the Hungarians, on Wednesday it's for Ukrainians. And it's even now, it's got these different layers of historical influences. And I felt that when I went into Ukraine, I just stepped into history. It really had a, an emotional, psychologically, you know, sort of uh, unexpected impact on me because I felt that I was time traveling. I was going back and forth, in my, at least in my own head, because I was seeing traces of the past everywhere that I went that were not always Ukrainian, but the Ukrainian was in there. And I could really understand why it is that Ukraine had this very difficult predicament and is going to have that difficult predicament, unfortunately, for some time to come. And you say that, and we're looking at the First World War. What, what are the other parallels that you see between what happened with the First World War and the current situation, Frank? Well, I, I think there. I think uh, the, the main parallel with with then and now is not so much the First World War, but the years leading up to it. Mm -hmm. Because the years leading up to it was 
I'm talking about essentially from about 1910 to 14, were years when the old order was breaking down. You know, we had this golden era in Europe, and all of a sudden that golden era was coming to an end. You had internal domestic tensions. You had, Can I just stop you there? Because I don't think a lot of people will know about this. What, what do you mean by a golden era in the early 20th century? Frank? Well, the late Victorian era ends in the 19th century. Yeah. And if you go anywhere in Central Europe, you'll find these beautiful buildings. Uh, and they were all essentially built between 1890 and 1905, roughly. Because that's really when, that when, due to the Industrial Revolution, due to the economic, relative economic prosperity, not for everybody, but for the uh, middle classes, really began to kick in. That's the beginning of what we call consumer society in Europe. And everybody's saying, this is really incredible. Now, some Bohemians feel upset because life's too easy, and they, you have the new avant-garde kind of emerging at that time. But by and large, this was a, an unprecedented era of peace. I mean, decades and decades of peace in inverted common in Europe. And why does it start to break down? I think it, it begins to break down because... Uh, national tensions and rivalries, principally between Britain and Germany, but then also with, within that kind of context, you have a lot of conflicts begin to emerge. And, and nobody knows who's going to be on what side, because until that point, Britain, the British Empire, is the hegemonic power in the globe, but it's losing its economic muscles. So what you then have is a situation where, for example, uh, new alliances get created, and nobody know, knows who's going to be on what side. So just to give you an example, you know, sort of uh, when, the, when the war breaks out, Italy is not yet clear, you know, whether they're going to be on the side of the Austro-Hungarian Empire and, 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 and uh, Germany, or whether they're going to be with England and France and America. And in the very last minute, they change. And you have all these, you know, the Turks begin to change, everybody's positioning themselves. And so you have this, you know, this kind of world that you cannot predict how, how it's going to unfold. And to me, the situation today is very similar in the sense that that ethos of globalization that we were led to believe would last forever, where national interest and the nation state would diminish significantly. Suddenly we find that, especially with COVID and, and the Ukrainian war, that suddenly the, the, the world is breaking up and everybody's looking, you know, what side they should be on. And people wonder whether, you know, Taiwan should be defended or not defended. People are wondering whether Europe should make an effort to pull together or, you know, are the Germans and the French just going to go their own way? So it's a very kind of fluid, dynamic situation. And it just so happens that in the middle of that, you got this war in the Ukraine. And it just so happens that in the middle of that, we discovered this week that uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan, which are not small, insignificant states, are fighting a, a little mini-war, a kind of a sideshow, which could turn out to be even more significant than the war in the Ukraine itself. And it's interesting when we're talking about that because you're talking about, you know, the, the decades of peace and prosperity, and it seems that, well, it doesn't seem, that's what we've enjoyed here. Do you think that, that people get lulled into a sense of security, thinking you know, there's good times, nobody's at war, therefore we've eliminated war. I, I think there is that problem, uh, particularly in the Ang Anglo-American world. And in the book, I talk about the geopolitical illiteracy that you have in Britain, where you have a foreign office, where I meet guys from the foreign office and they don't speak a foreign language. 
Really? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. I mean, the Foreign Office was famous for their, you know, Arab speakers. The, the Times last week reported that we haven't got enough Mandarin speakers in the Foreign Office, and this is obviously a very serious matter because China is one of our, the big issues of our time. So we have this geopolitical literacy where people are not very good at anticipating and calculating, and I think that that kind of the, our, our elites have become uniquely ineffective in dealing with geopolitical issues. And what is the role of the Cold War and the post-Cold War period and what's happened? Because, uh, the, you know, people argue that, I mean, uh, I, I have some difficulty with this argument, but do people do make the argument that, you know, Russia wasn't treated the way it should have been treated after the collapse of the Soviet Union? We needed a, a Marshall Plan. We needed to help Russia onto its feet. Uh, and later, in fact, NATO started to encroach on Russia's strategic interest. And so, and this is the cause, the sort of like Western arrogance and uh, lack of respect for, for, for Russia. I wouldn't put it like that. There is a, a Western influence there, which wasn't very helpful. And that happened in the Yeltsin period. You had the major liberalization of the market and you had the privatization of the nomenclature of the old Soviet elite. Uh, who'd basically managed to appropriate for themselves all the state property, all the state resources, and essentially uh, ripped it off and private creation of the oligarchy. Exactly. Yeah. So, so people don't often understand that the West was quite complicit in the creation of the oligarchy, and I think uh, in that sense, uh, you know, they they probably imagined that they would turn out to be you know good old capitalists like a Rockefeller was mm -hmm. or whatever. But what they didn't really understand is that by doing that, you essentially undercut the possibility of a genuine democratic transition because you created the basis for an oligarchical society and an oligarchical state. And oligarchies in general in history are, are very rarely open to democratic pressure. They're not going to be particularly accountable. So I think that was a problem. Uh, opportunity was lost at that particular moment in terms of you know, having a much more um, both hands-off attitude, but also, I think, not encouraging this kind of, because a lot of the American other companies went in there to encourage the rise of the oligarchy. So I think that was a tragedy. And I think the second thing, it's not so much that Russia needed a, a martial plan. I think that there should be much more of an effort to try to bring Russia into NATO. So, for example, I remember I... I I was involved, after 9-11, I was involved in a NATO uh, consultant group consisting of Westerners and Russia, Russians. And we were discussing how to deal with a common problem, which was global Islamic terror, which was as much a problem for them as it was for the West. And we had no problem uh, cooperating. Um, obviously, we had very different interests and all that. But I, I kind of wish that we had created much more much, much more space where there could have been uh, sort of uh, a kind of uh, dialogue going on, which might have limited the possibility of what eventually then occurs, where you have the unrestrained emergence of grievance politics by Putin, uh, where his, his kind of Russian identity politics is allowed to flourish. Uh, and where, where the, all that the West does is kind of it, watch, it kind of watches it, you know, sort of and doesn't really understand that this is a very, very dangerous development. But surely, Frank, as well, we didn't just watch because 
I think it was uh, during Tony Blair's uh, regime, we allowed billions of dirty Russian money to flow into the city. So we were, we were also in cahoots. It was in our interests as well. Well, that's what I was getting at earlier on when I was talking about the privatization of the nomenclatura. Yeah. Because when you look at all the foreign energy companies and the foreign investment bankers and the way that foreign service provider, the big four like KPMG, all these, all these big organizations went into Russia because the way they looked at it, they could clean up and they, they did really, really well out of that whole situation. And they created what they thought was just like a, a comprador, subservient, oligarchical class, uh, not understanding that the state, in, in essence, had not changed all that much. It was privatized economically, but politically, the, the, the layers of the state from the past were still in place. And uh, although the, you know, the KGB might have changed its name and although the different institutions looked, uh, had a different facade, uh, the fundamentals of that state structure, of that authoritarian structure remained behind this liberalized you know, sort of economic visage. Hey Francis, do you like locals? I live in London, mate, so obviously not. The only pleasure I get from the locals is when we share an intimate moment as we watch a Japanese tourist get trapped in a tube door. That is good. But I wasn't talking about the locals, I was talking about our community on locals. You mean the one where you get phenomenal behind the scenes content when you like your special species When you get to ask Incredible guests like Jordan Peterson, Brett Weinstein, Bill Burr, Sam Harris, Adam Carolla, Heather Hying, and others your questions? Not just that, you can get supporter-only benefits like trigonometry mugs, monthly calls with the other top supporters, and even a regular meal with me and Francis. You also get phenomenal behind-the-scenes footage of our trip to America where we met a whole host of incredible guests and gave ourselves terminal indigestion. We're also starting to do monthly giveaways for locals only. The first one will be signed copies of Andrew Doyle's new book. Plus, you get access to an incredible community of like-minded people who share memes, have fun conversations, and most importantly, you get to make new friends. You can support us with as little as $7 or about five pounds a month, or give us more for the higher tier benefits. Go to trigonometry.locals.com. Go to trigonometry.locals.com and support the show. And people don't actually understand that, you know, at the higher levels, there's still, you know, just like in the Soviet Union and in the Russian Empire before, there is no private property in Russia. The, the oligarchs don't own the assets that they own. They can be taken away just like that if you displease the czar or the president or whoever is the general secretary. Um, but uh, come back, come back uh, to uh, grievance politics and Russian identity politics. What are you talking about, Frank? Well, I think that uh, what happened was that uh, many people uh, in the Russian elite you know, sort of resented the, the fact that Russia was now going to become a a second-rate regional power rather than a global superpower. And they never got over the fact that there was this massive change in the status. Even though between you and me, even before the end of the Cold War, it was evident that Russian omnipotence was more apparent than real. It was a very weak, failed state even, even before that. But nevertheless, they could pretend 
that, you know, it's us in the United States, we run the world. And now all of a sudden you wake up one morning and you realize that you're just a, you know, a large regional power. And I think for, for those people, a lot of those people, that came as a bit of a shock and they basically began to uh, sort of blame the West for the predicament they were in. You know, Russia always had this interesting culture between the, the Russifiers and the Western, you know, sort of people that wanted to make Russia look like the West. You know, if you read Dostoevsky or Tolstoy, you will find those uh, elements already exist in the 19th century. And I think at a certain point, that kind of uh, animus against the West converged with this attempt to create this Russian, this Russian mystique, which then meant that it provided a certain kind of ideological understanding for them that somehow, you know, we were robbed. And of course, they were, they were robbed, but they were robbed by themselves rather than, and of course, by the West as well, but this principally, it was a domestic accomplishment. And as Constantine said, what they ended up doing was keep the state intact and then turn these oligarchs into a modern high-tech group of courtiers you know, who are there at the pleasure you know, of Putin or whoever happens to be in power. Well, see, this is why I have this issue with this argument about the West complicity. I have no doubt that Western corporations profited massively from the collapse of the, of the nation. But is it, I mean, the way I look at it, someone who grew up in Russia during that period is, is it the West's fault that Russia, the Soviet Union lost the Cold War? Because that's what we're really talking about. The resentment politics and the grievance inevitably comes from loss of status and loss of power, which is particularly an acute issue for Russians. They always have been obsessed with their role in the world, being powerful. It's literally the number one objective for, as people in Russia think about it. Is it our fault that we won the Cold War here in the West? Well, I mean, if the reality is that Russia lost the Cold War a long time before it did. Yes. Mm. Uh, and that was because, it, number one, it lost its moral authority. That was already the case in the, in the Stalinist era, mm -hmm. where its ideological and moral appeal began to diminish. Secondly, it lost the Cold War because it turned out in the 1970s that it had reached a limit in economic terms. It, it couldn't really make the transition from a heavy industry-based society to one that was technologically superior. It couldn't really do that. It could no longer compete in any sense whatsoever against the West in economic terms. Why was that, Frank? Because in order to uh, make the transition from heavy industry to more sophisticated technology, you need to have some kind of system of incentive. You need to have much greater freedom for people to experiment than uh, was possible in the old uh, Soviet regime. And the Soviet regime could do, uh, you know, build big roads and railway systems and heavy industry because that just meant they could throw a lot of labor at it. You know, hundreds of thousands of people could be thrown at it without necessarily having the uh, technological capacity to do this. So the Russian economy began to fault. It, looked, it still looked good because uh, where they wanted to do really well, for example, in the nuclear sector or the space te technology sector, they would prioritize all their best people and all their best resources to make sure that those sectors of the economy worked. But it was at the expense of everything else. So basically, you, you could be, have Sputnik you know, being the first one to go into space. But if you go into a shop in Russia, 
you know, you, could, you couldn't get a, a watch that worked, a Russian watch that worked, or a lighter that actually had, you know, could, could create flames, never, never mind just making noise. So that was the paradox of the economy. So that came to an end in the 1970s. And it just so happened that when Reagan, you know, you know turned the screws in terms of the arms rivalry, that was the end of the, you know, and they knew that. They already knew that, in, in, you know, even when Brezhnev was alive, that it was only a matter of time before that was the end. And the Russian uh, Stalinist elite themselves had stopped believing in it. And the way he knew that was the case was because they began to send their children to Oxford or to Yale. You know, they all, you know, all got nice Western degrees. They weren't getting, going to the University of, of Leningrad or, or, or Moscow. They were all going to the West. And that was the beginning of the privatization of this nomenclatura. So, Frank, at the core of this is the, 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 the Russian leadership and the Chinese leadership, they talk a lot nowadays about a multipolar world. You know, we don't want to live in a world that's dominated by essentially the Anglosphere, basically America plus, right? Um, and that is what this is all about, isn't it? I think partially. Uh, you have to remember that we don't live in a, uni a unipolar world anymore because America, uh, although it's probably the most uh, powerful economy even now, at the moment, more powerful than China, and although it's got this incredible soft power, cultural influence all over the world, it is no longer hegemonic in the way that it was in the past. Uh, so we are seeing the beginning of a multipolar world uh, whereby you have greater regionalism, greater regional economic ties taking place anyway. And I think that uh, what's happened is that Russia and to a greater extent China are trying to figure out how they could insert themselves into this new world and gain greater power. China is on the up at the moment. People don't realize it, but it's doing remarkably well in geopolitical terms. It's cleaning up in the South Pacific. For example, uh, I don't know if you heard, but there's a place called the Solomon Island, which used to be run by the Australians and the Americans. And the Chinese just went in there, bribed everybody, and now they're like the dominant power there. And America wakes up and realizes, you know, much, much too late, look what has happened. China is very active in Latin America and in Africa. It's very active in Europe. Uh, Australia, I mean, I, when, you, when you go to Melbourne or you know, any of these places, you'll you find that it's got a massive influence there. So we are seeing a much more fragmented world order taking place. And the really important question that is indeterminate at the moment is where, where does Europe fit in, into all this? To what extent can Europe play a, a, a significant role because at the moment, Europe is allowing itself to become the bagman for the United States, essentially. Uh, it's not taking any initiative. At the same time, it's criti criticizing the Americans for you know, taking the initiative, but it's not doing anything that, that could possibly resemble the ambitions of, a, of anybody who wants global power. But do you think the problem is as well, is that it feels to me, and look, you all know far more about this than I do, but it feels to me like in the West and in Europe in particular, we're more divided than ever. We seem to be at each other's throats. We, you know, it's, there's political turmoil happening. We're entering a cost of living crisis all over Europe. So I guess my question to you is, Frank, how can we possibly lead the world when we can't even lead our own countries? Well, you know, my book, the, one of the main points of my book is what I call the moral disarmament of the West. And I think that's, for me, is a really crucial concept because what that really 
gets at is that uh, in the West, uh, there is no commanding moral system of authority, no moral, no moral imagination where you're able to give your people uh, a sense of meaning about what it means to be English or what it means to be French or American. And I think what has happened is that we've become detached from the past. We talked about the loss of historical sense. And what you're left with is this very narrow outlook, which is a combination of technocratic ambition and identity politics. There are only two things that are going at the moment. And what you're really describing is probably the biggest challenge we face, because when you look at the United States, it's so polarized. People are so much at each other's throats. It is like going to two different countries, you know, so where you, people literally don't talk to each other anymore. And we get a lot of that here, even in Britain, but nothing, in, nothing like the same intensity. But that's gradually spreading all over Europe. So that kind of internal division, uh, which is not mediated by a common sense that this is what we are, uh, you know, sort of is a huge problem, which is why I think, as we're speaking, we got all this uh, unusual reaction uh, about the Queen's death, where suddenly Queen Elizabeth becomes this, you know, essentially she reminds us that history does matter, that there is such a thing as a historical legacy. And unless we take that seriously, there's nothing, there's no soil on which we can flourish as a society. And that's a real challenge for, for our society, like I said before, because you look at China and, and you look at Russia and it's far more easy from the outside for them to be, uh, for them to be unified because they're totalitarian regimes. Whereas what you have with democracy is that you have change and you have free speech and you have partisanship. It's, it's far more difficult, isn't it, to be cohesive in those types of societies? Up to a point, I think you're right, but I, I think there's a danger of uh, overstating the capacity of an authoritarian society like Russia or China to create this kind of homogeneous outlook. It looks like that from the outside, but there are very important internal tensions uh, occurring there as well. And the influence of the West is quite important among sections of Russian or Chinese society. There are regional differences. And one of my fears you know, is not just simply what Russia is doing in Ukraine. One of my fears is what will happen if Russia implodes, the Federation implodes, because you know, the Russian Federation is by no means as coherent and stable as it looks. A lot of the republics, you know, sort of that exist within the Russian Federation are dying to get out of that federation. They're all looking somewhere else. Well, they're not Russian ethnically for they're a start. Russian, exactly. They're not Christian very often, etc., etc., which is one of the things that started to happen in the 90s, which is why you end, with Put end up with Putin, because the country's collapsing. Chechnya wants to separate. It's just the beginning. And they are like, we need to find a strongman leader who's going to crack down and hold the country together. Um so what what do you what do you think is going to happen with the war in Ukraine and with Russia? Well, in the book, I argue that this is a typical frontier war, and a frontier war usually means that it that there are these uh, inbuilt, long, historically rooted uh, sources of tension, and the way that I, I look at it is that for that reason, I think this war is not going to end anytime soon. Because although there's, there no doubt will be peace treaties and you know, sort of uh, they will decide to have ceasefires and everything else, 
uh, that's not going to happen because uh, this is a war that Ukraine uh, cannot win and Russia cannot afford to lose. I think Ukraine can win a major moral victory. It's already done that to some extent. It can hold on to all the territory that Russia tried to take away from it. But at the end of the day, Ukraine is Ukraine, and it's not in a, hasn't got the power and the strength, even with Western support, to inflict such a blow on Russia. That it that would completely uh, sort of mean that that's that is really the end. So the way that I see that is that the conflict is going to continue for some time to come, and what we you know there's nothing we can do about it here and there because it, it depends upon the people on the ground. All that we can do is uh, hope that somehow a certain breathing space can be created for Ukraine to recharge its battery because it's losing a lot of people. It's, uh, you know, it's losing a lot of its resources. And hopefully, uh, sort of, um, as the global order you know, reorganizes itself, it might be a little bit more difficult to start a new war. And that's what I'm really hoping for. And uh, I think the key thing is ensuring that everything is done Possible to make sure that Ukraine's, in the, Ukraine's independence and its uh, capacity to be a sovereign nation is upheld and protected. Uh, I think that's the key objective. At the same time, I think that we've got to be wary of the possibility of Russia disintegrating and the uh, corrosive and explosive consequences that will have in the Caucasian and all the, all the different, you know, the Asian parts of, of the Federation, which could be could unleash a dynamic that will, you know, you know kind of in, invite Iran in, bring in Turkey, and God knows what's going to happen at that point. So we, we've touched on this, and for there's going to be a lot of people who are very interested in this, who have never had this, have never even contemplated this thought, and I'm one of them. Why might Russia implode, and what are the countries who want to break free of, of Russia? Well, I think that just about every non-Russian Republic, you know, would rather, you know, sort of move away at a distance. And even Armenia, uh, which often acts as a Russian proxy state, uh, even Armenia doesn't, isn't, hasn't got a love affair with, with Moscow by any means. So the, the, the way that I see it is that uh, the, the Russian Federation is held together by essentially uh, coercive, authoritarian means rather than through any kind of consensus. And there are very few mechanisms for consensus to be achieved. It's all done by negotiations and bullying. It's that, that kind, of, kind of combination. And what's happened in most recent period is that Turkey and Iran, for very different reasons, are using its influence to try to seduce and attract people to move in their direction. Um, pretty much in the way that you know, sort of, we had a, a comparable situation in Kosovo and elsewhere where you have different Islamic powers trying to uh, sort of gain a degree of uh, influence, if not hegemony, in that part of the world. So, yeah, I've, I've got this very bad feeling that if you have something like the, a comp something like a, the Balkan War, you know, Mark II, but this time within, within the Russian Federation, the consequences of that will be much more uh, drastic, dramatic than what happened in in in, in the old Yugoslavia. And, and what might those consequences be for, geopolitically, Frank? Well, I think that 
the way that I, yeah, I mean, one of the things that I worry about is that I will put Iran in a much stronger position because, you know, Iran's already been made an honorary member of this uh, club that China and Russia inhabit. So there's this kind of new triangle relationship that's been established. I don't think that would be a very good result if Iran strengthens its kind of position and stabilizes itself precisely at that time where within Iran things are going awry. I think that Turkey is very interesting in this respect because Turkey is on a roll at the moment because it's needed by NATO. The NATO really relies on Turkey as this intermediary. Uh, but at the same time, Turkey's got very clear, distinct interests, which fundamentally contradict that of Europe and, 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 and European powers. So that's what I meant earlier on when we talked about a situation not unlike before First World War, where we, not, where we simply don't know who's going to line up with who under those circumstances. Uh, and I suppose the question, because I remember when the, the war in Ukraine first, uh, when the, Russia first invaded Ukraine, when that conflict began, uh, there were a lot of very, uh, I, I hope they'll forgive me for saying this, very naive people in the West who were like, what? We, just, we just need to get rid of Putin. That's what we need to do. And, and they thought that, that's, uh, that that would help. Uh, and I was always saying to them, you do realize you get rid of Putin, it's probably not going to be Nick Clegg that comes to power in Russia. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Um, so either you're going to get another strongman leader who's going to need to assert himself even more to prove himself because he's not Putin, he hasn't proven himself. Or there's the other scenario which you're alluding to, which is he's not strong enough to hold the Federation. It's really an empire, what Russia is today, the Russian empire together. And then you get the disintegration of this country, which has an awful lot of nuclear weapons. You're right. And I, and I think what the tragedy is, and this goes back to the point about geopolitical illiteracy, is a lot of people have a psychological interpretation of the war that Putin is just a mad person. And if you remove that kind of cancerous growth on, on Russian society, then it'd be really cool. Not realizing that uh, you, know, you can't blame the war on this single individual. There's a whole system at play there. There's a lot of uh, interests that are at work. And if Putin is taken out, then somebody else will replace him who might uh, smile a little bit more than Putin does, but essentially things will pretty much remain the same. And, and I do think this naivety is very, very unhelpful, this single-minded focus on an individual or a small number of individuals rather than the fact that there's a whole system, imperial system that, that's running that society that have a, that's got a common interest in maintaining the status quo. So that being the case then, uh, I hear what you say about Ukraine. Ukraine should be given the support it needs to remain independent and hopefully things calm down over time, even though they're, they're very strong pre-existing interests from both sides that are in conflict. What should the West do? What should we do in this country? What should the Americans do? What should Europe do uh, in order to manage this crisis, which is from what you're saying, it's really a global crisis, this, what's happening here. What should the West do to mitigate some of the consequences of what's happening? Well, in the end, it doesn't, it's not in the hand of the West entirely. In the beginning of the war, I got a lot of criticism because I argued, for example, that uh, we should uh, basically tell Russia to uh, neutralize the airspace so that basically Russia couldn't control the air 
unilaterally and indicate that the West will have, you know, sort of, the West, you know, sh should have, you know, will be sending in airplanes with, you know, military supplies. If not in the whole Ukraine, at least draw lines so that, you know, west of Kiev, you would have, you know, sort of the, a kind of a, a, a no-go area where this could be done. I got a lot of criticism for saying that I'm just escalating the war and they will make things a little bit more difficult. Well, not, not a little bit more difficult. People would have said you're starting World War III. That's what they That's were saying. That's what they would say. Exactly. A little bit more difficult. It's a very, <laughs> you see, Frank is so British now. Yeah. That's yeah. that's his definition you're, of a little, yeah. bit, yeah. More a little bit more difficult. The end of the world <laughs> is a little bit more difficult. Yeah, I've, I've kind of learned the English understatement. Yes. You know, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Do you have a website or do you plan to have a website? Because if you do, then EasyDNS is a company for you. EasyDNS is the perfect domain name registrar provider and web host for you. They have a track record of standing up for their clients, whether it be cancel culture, de-platform attacks, or overzealous government agencies. He knows about that. So will you in a second. <laughs> EasyDNS have rock solid network infrastructure and fantastic customer support. They're in your corner, no matter what the world throws at you unless it's your ex-girlfriend, in which case you're on your own. <laughs> you know about that. <laughs> Move your domains and websites over to EasyDNS right now. All you've got to do is go to easydns.com forward slash triggered. That's easydns.com forward slash triggered. Use our promo code, which is also triggered, and get 50% off the initial purchase. Sign up for their newsletter, Access of Easy, which tells you everything you need to know about technology, privacy, and censorship. So I was accused of being a warmonger, and you know, and I and I, and the point that I made was that if you basically argue that every time you help Ukraine, it kind of creates the risk of a nuclear war, then you might as well give up because what Quite. you're saying that uh, you know Russia's uh, nuclear blackmail is going to have the last word on everything, and I still think that, but but now that the war has gone on for so long, what I'm really worried about is that uh, the, the nature of the war has changed quite dramatically. And somehow or, or another, you know, sort of, uh, we need to kind of take a step back and find how we can limit the damage that's being created uh, within Ukraine itself. I, I do worry about the consequences of this for Ukrainian society in the long run, because they need a bit of breathing space and stability in order to rebuild and get their act together. So, you know, that seems to me to be the key thing. I think the, the West, you know, people in the West should uh, be fighting for uh, the creation of, I suppose, a lack of a better expression, a red line that Russia knows that they must not cross uh, as a way of indicating that, you know, that Russia knows that if they cross the red line, there'll be an external intervention. But within that, it's going to be resolved by the Ukrainian people themselves with or support. Well, I, don't, the, I don't want to lecture the Ukrainians telling no. them what to do. That's, no, no, that's no, key. of course. Uh, but I was asking about the West because the West is the deciding factor, I would argue, Frank, because if the West doesn't help Ukraine, Ukraine will collapse in a day. And if the West wanted to for Ukraine to win, you say Ukraine can't win. Actually, Ukraine could win if the West provided what it needs to win. Whether the West wants to do that is a different conversation. But I suppose the, the, perhaps a more optimistic scenario is you we talked very early on in the conversation, you mentioned that Ukraine never really had a strong national identity. There was a strong ethnic identity, yeah. but not a national identity. I'd argue we're starting to see 
the formation of a very strong national Ukrainian identity. So while, of course, they're taking losses and the economy is being damaged and the industrial uh, heartlands are also, to some extent, being affected by the war, this could be the beginning of the emergence of an actual country called Ukraine, um, which, if it is given the support it needs to be part of the EU or to be some sort of NATO ally or something like that, it could be just uh, a normal country eventually, couldn't it? Well, I have big hopes for Ukraine becoming a normal country. And you're right to suggest that as a result of this experience, there's an unusual degree of uh, domestic solidarity within Ukraine. And there's a kind of, even a certain cultural renaissance that is occurring that yes. you, can, you can see, which is really very nice to see. And by the way, just sorry to interrupt, there is a, a mending of the thing that was always at the heart of Ukrainian society, which is Western Ukraine, and Eastern Ukraine, the Russian speakers and, and the Ukrainian speakers, the people like to exaggerate the differences between the two. They're not as big as people like to believe. But nonetheless, th that that doesn't exist anymore in anything like the way that it did, right? Well, it still exists, but not, as you say, not in the way that it did. Yeah. And there's been a kind of coming together uh, as a result this, of this common experience. So I think that all that is true. Where I slightly disagree with you, mm -hmm is I don't think that the West can win the war for Ukraine you know, because there are real limits as to what the West can do, given the fact that there are, you know, if it goes beyond a certain point, then we are talking about uh, such an escalation uh, that, that the West would find unthinkable. I mean, I think the West is not known for its courage and its bravery and its spirit of sacrifice. And I cannot see, you know, I, I cannot see the West doing very much more. You know, my, my objective, as far as the West is concerned, is to make sure that uh, uh, its support, its economic and military support for Ukraine is not compromised in the medium term. And, 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 and that kind of war-weary sentiment that's beginning to kick in in many parts of Europe is to some extent contained and, and, and is not allowed to undermine the support that Ukraine is getting. I think that's that's what we should be hoping for and, and, and fighting for in the current era. And the problem, as you touched on before, Frank, with Ukraine is that obviously if Ukraine can't lose because they're literally fighting for their country, they're fighting for their lives. But Putin can't lose either. He can't lose face. Well, exactly. This is exactly that's what I write in the book. Neither side can afford to lose, which is why uh, it seems to me that this is a war that's going to go on for a long, long, long time. At a certain point, you know, something is going to happen in, in the global dynamic uh, that will essentially tilt the balance in such a way that uh, the, the conflict has a chance of being resolved. But I think that don't, don't think that's going to happen just yet because at the moment, everybody is literally positioning. And even, you know, we talk about the West helping Ukraine, but there's almost like a vulture-like approach where different European countries are looking for opportunities in this war. It's not like everybody's altruistically decided that we're just going to help Ukraine regardless of its consequences. People are looking for, you know, sort of their own interest and they're asking the question, well, what's in it for us? You know, sort of, and that kind of realpolitik uh, is never far from this, uh, under the surface uh, as at the moment. And it's also, you know, the, like you said, realpolitik, but you know, th there's also people making money out of this as well. Absolutely, yeah. This is... This is very much the case, you know, sort of, uh, and there's been a lot of discussions about the way in which, you know, under the radar, 
trade is still going on with Russia, mm -hmm. you know, sort of under the radar. You know, people are profiteering from the arms and the various resources and supplies that we're that's being sent to the Ukraine. So it's it is just like any other war. You know, there is a kind of surface form of patriotism, altruism, and heroism, but under the surface, the you know the war profiteering and the uh, and the hustling and everything else that still still goes on. Because we're also energy dependent on on Russia. Certainly, you know, not so much our country, but Germans, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. They they need r Russian energy. And we've got to understand that. I mean, you have to remember that there's a danger that if things go the way they are, the, the German economy, German industry, is simply going to disintegrate. I mean, there's already, if you look at the uh, the German economy, the, the middle level uh, uh, sort of multinational factories are really being hit very, very hard. You know, the small factories that are employing five, 600 people are, many of them are being are forced to close down. So there is a, obviously a, a cost to this. And I mean, the Germans did this to themselves, absolutely. let's be clear. Yeah, absolutely. Right. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm having a very much sympathy you know, for, for Germany. <laughs> I'm just simply saying that they yes. are in a predicament. Yes. And that's going to limit their flexibility and their willingness to do the right thing. Frank, let me ask you something that a lot of people will find a, a strange question, but I do think is at least a valid question to ask. That's normally what I do, mate. Yeah, sure. it's true. Um, would we be here without all of this identity politics, this internal strife and division? Every time an American president gets elected, either he was put there by the Russians or it was a fake election or whatever. Would we be having a war in Ukraine if the West hadn't, just started obsessing about all this stuff? It's a very good question and a very difficult one to answer. I think that uh, if, the, if this was a different world and if we had a stronger sense of purpose mm. and a stronger sense of who we are, a greater belief in democracy and sovereignty, in a, essentially in Western culture and Western way of life, then I think that uh, Western societies would be far more formidable uh, rather than being so uh, weak internally. And that would have made people think twice. You have to remember that there are many people in Moscow and Beijing you know, who, go, who look at the United States in particular and they see tension and conflict and they see uh, an army that spends more time you know, sort of messing around trying to figure out its pronouns <laughs> then, you know, sort of taking its military mission seriously. You know, they look at America and they find that this is a post-heroic age. Yes. Where courage is conspicuously absent in, in terms of the values of American society. And one of the points I try to make in the book is that a lot of people in Europe, you know, sort of particularly Germans, but also others, they look at the Ukrainians and they ask themselves the question, if we were invaded, you know, would our people you know, sort of fight back the way the Ukrainians did? Would they have the capacity to withstand that level of shock and attack? And a lot of people are saying that in their hearts of hearts, they don't think that they would. I looked at a survey of every single European country, and the survey asked the question, would you fight against a foreign invader? 
That was the question they asked. Do you know which was the country that had the highest response rate that they would find? Any idea? No. It was Finland. Yes. And that's understandable. That makes sense. Yeah. That They've done it before. They've done it before. It makes perfect sense. Yeah. And then you have the, uh, the low end, you know, it would be like the Dutch. You know, I'm no jokes about Dutch courage or anything like that. <laughs> but, it, you know, it was, it was the Dutch and the more kind of cosmopolitan, mm-hmm. you know, kind of nations. And I think that when you, when, when you kind of look at this, this goes back to my point about moral disarmament. When you morally disarm, you know, uh, as, and, and the first time we ever used the term moral disarmament was in relation to France in the 1930s, where they just basically gave up, you know, sort of allowed the Germans to walk into Paris, you know, kind of more or less. When you kind of morally disarm in the way that we did, then being able to militarily and physically rearm or, 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 be, or be firm is, is problematic. I mean, I hope I'm wrong. Well, this is what uh, I made this point the day the invasion happened. I, in my opinion, it would never have happened if we hadn't spent the last six years obsessing about stuff that didn't really matter. Um, but I have been heartened by the West response, actually. And I suppose the question for me is, has this been the wake-up call that we needed? Because I don't believe that Vladimir Putin is sitting in the Kremlin now going, this has gone the way I wanted, right? I, I think he overestimated the weakness and division of the West. I think he overestimated uh, the, the reaction that he would receive, both from within Ukraine and from externally. Is it possible that this is the spark the West needed to sort of wake up and go, maybe we shouldn't make ourselves energy dependent on people who are uh, at least adversaries, let's put it that way, right? Yeah, this is maybe the moment we go, okay, look, globalization was great for a while, but it's not working in this current climate. We've got to have food security. We've got to have energy security. We've got to have actual security. We've got to be willing to, to work in a different way in this new world. And part of that means we've got to stop obsessing about stuff that doesn't matter and deal with it. Do you think that's possible? Possible, but if you if if kind of roll the film backwards, when the war broke out, Putin's assessment of the West was absolutely correct. Because if you remember the initial reaction in the weeks leading up to the invasion and, and on the day of the invasion was we don't really want to help the Ukrainians too much because the war is going to be finished in a couple of weeks. True. It's pointless. True. And I've got, the, in the book I mentioned all these people, you know, the, the German government basically telling the Ukrainian uh, ambassador, we're not going to help you because in a couple of weeks, you know, there's not going to be a Ukraine. So you had this very kind of cowardly, you know, sort of extremely opportunistic reaction by the West. Not by Britain. No, Britain was, you know, Britain was the honorable exception. Brit- the two good countries in this drama at that point are Britain and Poland. So then and the what, Baltics as well, sorry. And the Baltics, keep, yeah. yeah, yeah. And then what happens is that uh, when people in the West see that the Ukrainians are fighting, you know, that they're not rolling over and, and that contrary to their expectation, the Russian army is making one blunderous mistake after another, Suddenly, what you have is a situation where every Western leader wants to hang out in Kiev, you know, <laughs> next, you know <laughs> sort of, and wants to take these pictures with the pre- Ukrainian president. And at that point, what you have is Ukraine becomes what I call uh, a kind of a, a medium through which Western leaders try to gain legitimacy, you know, and, and because, look authoritative standing next to him, which is a little bit parasitic because they are being parasitic on what the Ukrainians are doing. And then when Biden sees that Russia is in big trouble, 
that's at that point that the West starts coming together and NATO is reinvented because NATO was a zombie organization mm -hmm. beforehand. So NATO is reinvented as this, you know, sort of credible force. Europe begins to, uh, in a sense, talk with greater unity than previously, not completely. And then you have this apparent solidity, this solidarity in the West, which I, I still think is more apparent than real. But uh, give them credit where it's due. I think at that point, people feel that on balance, supporting Ukraine at this particular moment in time is far better choice to make than just holding back in the way we're doing beforehand. However, I think, you know, sort of where Constantine, you really are right, is that because of all of what, what's really happened, globalization, not globalization, but globalist ideology becomes no longer credible. You have the fragmentation of, of regions and the uh, reinsertion of pride in the nation and national sovereignty and the recognition that in economic terms, you know, you cannot rely on God or somebody in America to provide you with food and energy or even with vaccines. You got to attend to those things yourself. And I think that has really created a much greater understanding that the nation isn't just unimportant, as it was argued earlier on, that national borders do matter, and that we have to be much more self-sufficient than we were beforehand. And that's creating uh, an interesting, you know, sort of uh, global dynamic, where essentially we're going to have much greater emphasis on regions looking after each other and division of labor established within regional settings. And that might, you know, sort of, uh, cross, you know, fingers crossed, create a greater awareness of the of a sovereignist political outlook and also uh, the kind of moral values that are usually associated with patriotism and commitment to your nation. I think that would be a really positive thing. And you can see a bit of that. I was in Finland recently, and I just love the fact that there are all these young kids volunteering to join this reserve army. Everybody's signing up, you know, and I think that, that kind of attitude, if you see a bit more of that, could, not be, a, you know, could be a really, really good development. Because what will happen, Frank, if we take the easy way out or the coward's way out or however way you want to say it and we don't give Ukraine the support that it needs, what do you think will happen then? I think what will happen is that uh, Russia, well, if that would have happened, then obviously Russia would begin to imagine that it can recreate the Yalta borders. And that would have all kinds of negative consequences in, in the Baltic states. It would have negative consequences in East Europe. But more importantly, it would send out a signal that, uh, you know, what really matters is your power, your, your might, rather than anything else. And I think that would, that would then create a situation where, you know, wars and the militarization of the global environment would gain much greater traction than is the case at the moment. My big worry at the moment is not Russia. You know, I mean, Russia is Russia and, uh, you know, Fortunately, I'm not living in Riga or, or Tallinn. Um, but my big worry is the way that our societies, you know, Britain and elsewhere, have kind of lost their way, which is why the book is really about how the West lost their way and, and the way in which they simply have forgotten what they are, what they're about, and, and not having a, a robust sense of national purpose. I think that's what haunts me all the time. Yeah, uh, me too, which is why I do hope this is the spark that we've needed to wake up from our stupor. And I think some people are starting to realize we don't live in the magical rainbow unicorn world that we've 
sort of been dreaming in for the last 30 years. And it's it's been a luxury and a privilege that we've had. Uh, it's been a great few decades for for actually most of the world, frankly. However, in order to maintain that world, you have to be willing to stand up for it. And we haven't been. So I hope that's what happens. Frank, it's been a, a great conversation. I hope everybody gets the book. Here it is, The Road to Ukraine. Um, as always, we've got one final question before we do our questions from our supporters on Locals. Uh, what is the one thing that we're not talking about in our society that we really should be, in your opinion? Well, the one issue I feel very passionate about and resent that it's never actually discussed in its own terms is the way that we're infantilizing our society and the way that adults are encouraged to behave like children and the way that children are adultified and we kind of, the boundary between adulthood and childhood is lost. So what we have is a situation where we have a lot of biologically mature people, but who are essentially not encouraged to take themselves seriously and have that sense of moral and intellectual independence that we need. And we need that precisely for dealing with the challenges that we've been discussing, because this is very much a grown-up issue. And our, our children or, or people who behave childishly are not going to be in a position to give a lead or to uh, sort of fight back against all the bad and negative developments that are kicking in in our world. Frank, it's been a pleasure. If people want to find you online, if they want to get the book, where's the best place to do that? Well, the book you can get on Amazon. And uh, otherwise, I got a substack, frankferedi.subcat.com. And I also got a Frank Ferredi website. Perfect. Frank, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you guys for watching and listening. We will see you very soon with another brilliant episode like this one or our show. All of them go out at 7 p.m. UK time. And for those of you who like your trigonometry on the go, it's also available as a podcast. Take care and see you soon, guys. Nowadays, we do seem more risk averse and we seem to be less innovative. Is this due to changes in society, family, education, child rearing, and also the loss of religious faith? Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.